People are afraid in Vancouver. You shouldn't have to walk down the street looking over your shoulder, but that's the way it is now. You just kind of get used to this being part of what it means to be a Vancouverite. This isn't normal and this is actually something wrong and that we should hold our political leaders accountable for presiding over something that is clearly not okay. We had a good city in the 90s. What the f happened then? What is happening to Vancouver? One of the wealthiest and most naturally beautiful cities in all of North America has been beset by skyrocketing crime, violent attacks, and a crippling battle with addiction that's literally left thousands of people dead. But what is at the root of all these problems? Do police have the tools they need to do their jobs? Are violent offenders being released with little to no regard for public safety? And has an ideal obsession with so-called safe supply and free drugs overshadowed the desperate need for treatment, recovery, and rehabilitation. Harm reduction. Somebody's got a sense of humor, man. Because yeah. that shit ain't helping nobody, man. Right. It's helping everybody get high more. Everywhere you look that this stuff has taken hold significantly, the cities have become destroyed. My name is Aaron Gunn, and this is Politics Explained. 174 more deaths lost to illicit drugs in BC. There was an altercation, an exchange of gunfire, and a man in his 40s was shot dead. Police say the man was walking shirtless in traffic while kicking cars before the woman and toddler were knocked over. Vancouver is dying. Crime is on the rise, violence is rampant, and residents don't feel safe in their own communities a trend that's only been accelerating over the past few years. According to the Vancouver Police Department's Public Safety Indicator Report, when compared to average crime rates between 2017 and 2019, 2022 has seen robberies up 21%. Assaults against police officers are also up 21%, and violent assaults as a whole are up 36%. And these stats undoubtedly underestimate the problem since in the first quarter of 2022, 40% of all non-emergency calls went unanswered. What was once contained to the downtown east side is now spreading into the rest of Vancouver, affecting businesses and residents across the city. I set out to see just how bad it has gotten and how the people who live and work here have been affected. I met first with the owner of an Italian restaurant in Vancouver to see the impact rising crime has had on his business. I started my business on the drive back in 1998. Yeah. We used to be able in summertime, leave our doors and windows open during the night. Well, now you can't do that. I mean, we had panhandling, illegal vending, uh, people trespassing in the doorways. I mean, it's really gotten out of hand. For example, they'll come in, they'll try to steal the tips right from the counter. Uh, they'll try to steal the cell phone. Like, you know, I had one of my employees you know, just put the, the cell phone on the counter. The guy reached over like this and grabbed it. We had people like shooting up in the washroom, the defecating, urinating anywhere. The needles that you find all over the place. And that happens around here too? Oh, it happens everywhere. It happens all over the city now. I mean, it's, it's insane. I caught a guy doing the graffiti, but I thought like, do I confront him? Do I call the police? So I called the police. The police came and this guy had a hatchet in his backpack. So, I mean, if I would have confronted him, who knows what would have happened. And Frederico isn't alone in feeling this way. According to a survey conducted by the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, 44% of businesses say crime and public safety is the top issue they're dealing with. The problem has gotten so bad that businesses are taking extreme measures to prevent theft or leaving certain areas altogether. But widespread lawlessness is impacting more than just businesses. The residents of Vancouver are living under threat of a new and terrifying trend of random assaults and stranger attacks. Delivery service employees stabbed. A woman casually walking down the street struck in the head with a hammer. 
racially motivated assaults, and even a woman who was literally set on fire. And these are only a few of the many stranger attacks that occurred on the streets of Vancouver this year alone. It's gotten so bad that according to the Vancouver Police Department, unprovoked attacks on strangers have jumped 35% since 2019. I met with a leading crime analyst for the Vancouver Police Department, Erzuz Arabian, who explained to me just how stranger attacks have spread across the city. What used to be normal in downtown Eastside, which I'm not saying is right, but what used to be normal and people would just walk by has now transferred in Kitsilano and downtown in Mount Pleasant area. There's four random attacks a day is what's been reported. And your likelihood of being a victim of a random assault is one in four. Wow. If you are a Vancouver resident. And again, that's reported crime. It's become the norm that if someone looks at you the wrong way, you shouldn't look back or you shouldn't say something back because you don't know what may happen. That was a story that I remember hearing as a kid about certain cities in the United States. I never thought that would happen in Vancouver. But evidently it has. Morella Gibbo is the mother of a woman in her 30s who was the victim of a random violent assault in Kitsilano. I met with Morella to get her daughter's account of exactly what happened. It's 2.30 in the morning, I get a phone call, and she's like in, in shock. And she's like, uh, I just got mugged, and um, I think they broke my nose, I think they broke my nose, they punched my face. They, oh my God, what am I gonna do? She's walking down a very quiet, residential, upper class, upper scale neighborhood, and these two guys pass her, and then they double back and they have like scarves. So they're masked they face, right? And one guy grabs at her purse and rips off her strap and the other guy takes her headphones and smashes them and then says, give me your phone. And then he punches her seven times in the face saying, give me your phone, give me your fucking stuff. And she's like, what the fuck, what the fuck? What the? And she's being punched in the face. I guess the one guy that had pulled on her purse, he, he hadn't been hitting her. So I, I don't know if he just thought and walked away. And then this guy that had been punching her in the face for seven times, I, he just stopped and followed his friend. And this is, this is not, just to lay this out for people, this is not the downtown east side in No! She was on the edge of, our, uh, of uh, Kitsilano and Point Grey where Point Grey the Richie Rich live. These types of attacks are becoming so common that grassroots movements are popping up across the city to address the issue of public safety in Vancouver. One of those groups, Save Our City, was founded by lifelong Vancouver resident, Dallas Brody. Things have definitely gotten worse. I would say I've seen the most dramatic decline in the situation in Vancouver in the last two and a half years. Downtown Vancouver, the days of me wanting to go down there and spend time just strolling the streets, no way. It's spreading and um, like I've, I've had things stolen right off my front porch here, even off my back porch and um, everybody in this neighborhood has had their windows smashed. I've had my car window smashed and things taken from my car and you know that was not this neighborhood before. So how can this be happening in a city as wealthy as Vancouver? How has public safety deteriorated so rapidly and when did it all begin? I met with retired police officer Curtis Robinson, who served with the VPD throughout the 1990s up until 2009 to find out how public safety has changed over the past few decades. There's no comparison between my experience as a police officer in Vancouver on Hastings Street, the downtown east side, to what it resembles today. It's, it's like you're in two different cities. It's that dramatic. It's absolutely, completely different. You didn't see any of the behavior you see. There was no such thing as stranger attacks. There was no such thing as robbing somebody with a, with a needle. There were consequences for your behavior. Now it's a free-for-all. You can do whatever you want. And there's a reason for that. Uh, it probably started to change somewhere in the mid-90s to where the approach at that time, instead of being um, 
very, very visible on the street and engaging the community on a daily basis. The focus in the mid-90s started to change when a certain commanding officer decided that perhaps it might be a nice idea to broker a friendship with the people, the residents of the downtown east side. And that's when it started to erode. They didn't want to be friends with us. And it wasn't our job to be friends with these people. It was our job to control behavior and maintain the peace. So once the line started to be moved, instantly they took advantage of that. So instead of, this is not really allowed down here now, like for example, fixing in a doorway or fixing at bus stops in the morning where people are afraid, now you started to see people do that because they knew that the rules had changed. So this was a gradual erosion. Decreasing the police presence in the downtown east side has only continued since the 90s, allowing lawlessness in the neighborhood to grow to the level it's at today. According to police union head Ralph Kaiser, it's reached the point where the city doesn't want police there at all, allowing the anarchy to spill into other areas of Vancouver. A lot of the stuff and a lot of the crime that's perpetuated in the downtown east side generally stayed within the downtown east side. That's not the case anymore. We have random stranger assaults and attacks across the city now, and it's, it is really concerning. You join this job because you're joining, you want to help people and whatnot, and you're literally in a position working in that neighborhood. Like, who are you helping? No one wants your help. The city doesn't want you to help anyone. You know, you're literally just sitting and wait until something really bad happens to then go deal with it, right? But there's no proactive policing at all. Particularly in the last little while under the current mayor and uh, some of the council. Gradually what happened is special interest groups and others started to press the, the, the city mayor and council about what they felt were oversteps by the police. Things like, for example, stopping and talking to somebody on the street. But now this is discouraged because the mayor has decided that this is infringement upon a person's rights. Are the police who are serving now finding it difficult to do their job properly? Absolutely. I run into some of the still police officers still serving and they say it's terrible right now. They're not allowed to do anything. It's not the proactive police. It's we can't do police. And the thing too now is it's really hard to hire good police officers now. Not too many people want to do this job anymore. You're on the news every day. You have to be afraid of everything you do. You don't have any support from the mayor or some council members. And now you can't do anything about the things you joined up to do. The restrictions placed on basic police functions by Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart has undoubtedly caused Vancouver's crime problem to get worse an issue he seems to be either completely oblivious to or simply just doesn't care. How many times has our mayor in the last few months gone on air to say, we live in the safest city, we are very safe. Nothing to see here, folks. How does it help to have our mayor and councillors saying, oh yeah, no, no, everything's fine. Do not believe your eyes, do not believe your ears, Everything is fine. It's not. On top of ignoring the issues caused by the restrictions he's placed on police, Kennedy Stewart exacerbated the problem even further by joining the notorious defund the police movement and slashing nearly $6 million off the VPD's budget in 2021. Uh, there was an attempt to, to defund us here in Vancouver, which was troublesome. You know, very, very tight budget as it is already. We're severely under-resourced, and now ultimately, you know, we're not getting the, the funding that we need to continue just literally to keep the lights on. We have a mayor that took away a big part of their budget this year, and they had to go to the government of BC to have their budget reinstated. Fortunately for Vancouver residents, the BC provincial government forced the city of Vancouver to return the $5.7 million to the police budget, stopping Kennedy Stewart's defund the police movement in its tracks, but not without lasting consequences. The relationship between the mayor and the Vancouver Police Department is broken. When you call your police department a systemically racist organization, 
It drove a huge wedge in between the membership and their confidence in City Hall. You can't do that in an organization that is 50% non-white. Take a look at the command level. This is not a racist organization. But he has gone a long way to try to promote that narrative. This woke, nonsensical narrative about the VPD promoted by Kennedy Stewart erodes public trust in police and makes it harder for them to do their jobs. Facing budget cuts, restrictions on basic police functions, and a mayor who wants to make the job of police harder at every turn, it's a wonder how the rule of law is enforced in Vancouver at all. But even after dodging all these obstacles and actually being able to make an arrest, there's no guarantee that the criminal will be prosecuted. In many cases, they might even be back on the street the very same day. You go sometimes through quite a bit of work to uh, apprehend, catch a criminal. Uh, a lot of times, you know, they are released. We can't have violent people wandering around our streets, scaring people, because it, it, it becomes a jungle. It's not uncommon for an offender to be arrested in the morning, let's say, in the early hours of the morning, and within that same 24-hour period, be re-arrested. So it can actually be arrested twice within the same 24-hour period. You could, and, and it's not un that's not unheard of. That has happened. I've seen it personally in my career, yes. The police, their hands are handcuffed because they can only do so much. So much. I'll give you an example. Uh, there was one guy that was arrested here. The police said, we arrested that guy like hundreds of times, literally, okay? So it's a revolving door. The revolving door justice system describes the catch and release policies put in place by Canada's politicians and made worse by many of the judges and prosecutors that they appoint. Criminals are arrested and released, arrested and released again in a cycle of never-ending perpetuation of crime allowing violent offenders to serve little to no jail time and return back to the street to offend again. This leads to a small number of prolific offenders who commit the vast majority of crime in Canada. For example, in Vancouver, just 40 people have been responsible for over 6,300 incidents. Really, it is a revolving door. And it doesn't send a message to anybody except that you're going to get a slap on the wrist and go back out and do it again. These people now understand that they're allowed to do just about anything. And there is absolutely no deterrent to change your lifestyle. Far from there being a deterrent, once released, these criminals are allowed to return to their life of crime and dodge any further accountability by hiding in highly populated lawless areas that this city has allowed to exist without supervision. These areas are called tent cities. For two years, a tent city in Oppenheimer Park was allowed to exist, attracting hundreds of people, including violent criminals, like the so-called mayor of Oppenheimer Park, who was charged with the murder of a 78-year-old woman. In June of 2020, after the Oppenheimer Park tent city was shut down, the people living there moved to Strathcona Park and set up a new tent city. In the first seven months of that year, calls to the VPD about weapons in the Strathcona area jumped by 50%. Calls about threatening behavior rose by 14% and break-ins in the area increased by 68% there are criminals that are drawn to those areas because there's like I say it's like a state of lawlessness uh, and they're able to come and go as they please no rules you know we had a murderer that was living in Strathcona there was a criminal element embedded in there there was a group for example that did a home invasion and murdered a woman there was uh, all kinds of weapons found in there in tent city these weapons were used to terrify the Strathcona neighborhood. Katie Lewis, the vice president of the Strathcona Residents Association, an outspoken critic of the Strathcona tent city, was brutally attacked on her front steps after walking by the park. She was struck in the head with a metal pipe several times until she lost consciousness. 
the Strathcona Tent City was finally removed by order of the Vancouver Park Board in April of 2021. But the drama of tent cities in Vancouver was far from over. If you enable a certain behavior, you're going to get more of it. I mean, just take, take for example, on July 1st, they said they weren't going to clean up uh, any tents or anything on the streets of downtown Eastside. With less than 24 hours, you had Tent City now. On the street, it's not a park anymore. A new Tent City sprung up right on the street of the downtown east side. This happened right after the city announced a dramatic policy shift. The city stopped doing what was called street sweeps and that's the city engineering crews that would go down uh, daily and literally sweep and clean uh, the 100 East Hastings. You know, there's certain groups within the city that didn't like the idea of the police or the city being there and cleaning the street. And, you know, that's their home. We shouldn't be, you know, uh, entering, their, entering their homes, taking their homes, their property, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, okay, the city's decided we're not gonna do this. And no sooner than that day uh, came, uh, then again, the tents started creeping up and popping up. The tent city on the streets of the downtown east side was a shock to local residents. The area, which was already unsafe, was now harboring dangerous criminals in plain sight. The impact of the tent city was felt immediately. The downtown east side, the 100 East Hastings, um, it's not a safe place. There are residents that live in those buildings uh, in and amongst that tent city and they don't feel safe. They can't come and go as they please. You know, there's a gentleman that lives down there. He's disabled, he's in a wheelchair. And like he's trying to maneuver through all these tents and all the stuff that's laying around. And uh, someone took offense to him trying to get through there and stabbed him in the back, right? Like, like this is, it's unbelievable, right? The tents allowed criminals to hide weapons right along the street. After receiving information that guns and drugs were being stored inside a tent, the VPD responded and found two firearms, including a loaded shotgun, in one of the tents. You can only imagine what else was lingering nearby. I wanted to see firsthand just how bad the downtown east side tent city really was. So, accompanied by two police officers, I headed down there. What I saw was truly shocking. be dangerous down here? It's very dangerous down here. Um, after 7 o'clock, I don't usually suggest anybody coming out and doing things because you never know what happens, right? I, I'm more concerned about the seniors coming down here and the kids. I've seen a lot of people get hurt down here and it's sad. Um, uh, of course, the drugs are involved. I'm an addict. I, I smoke speed and pot. Um, I've been an addict for 20, 20-something years and I've been on the street for 27 years. And it's been hard. I've seen a lot of deaths. I've seen a lot of murders. Has it been getting worse, do you think? It's getting worse. This is the worst I've ever seen this in my whole life I've been down here. It's the worst of the worst. People are going missing every day. I lost a lot of friends, uh, over, over 100 people. Um, I just lost a friend two days ago. So do you think the drugs aren't the main problem or addiction's the not the main problem? aren't the main problem. It's like, <laughs> I bet you have a cup of coffee every morning. And do you, do you notice, I mean, are there a lot of issues with addiction and stuff around here? Or, 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 or what do you think? There's a lot of issues with addiction. The main, the main, like finance of the economies are addictions. Big tobacco companies, oil, everything. It's all addictions. You want to buy that new fancy sports car because you're going through a midlife crisis. More addictions. Oh, you want to soup it up and make it all chromed out. More addictions. Like it just because it isn't the kind of addictions like that people are used to. It's just the same thing, man. Yeah, it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty heavy uh, case of denial there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Marshall Smith, the chief of staff for the Alberta Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, knows the downtown east side of Vancouver all too well. For five years, he lived there, homeless and drug addicted. I spent about 10 years as a correctional officer for the BC Corrections Branch, you know, a career which I really enjoyed and progressed through that and wound up working in the Gordon Campbell administration. Uh, as chief of staff uh, in the minister's office for the Olympic bid for British Columbia. And around that time, you know, the, you know, my alcoholism and, uh, and addiction really took off. Uh, and as it does, you know, began to interfere with, with my career. And before long, 
uh, you know, wound up hanging up my suit and tie at the legislature and vanishing into the streets of Vancouver, uh, where I had lots of run-ins with you know, law enforcement and a great difficulty in the transition between you know, that life as a normal citizen and, and one as a homeless addict, where I spent five and a half years on the streets of Vancouver. I remember living in a shipping container not a couple of blocks away from where we are right now, uh, downtown Vancouver. You know, I was down here. I lived on every block in this city, you know, when I was out here. What helped me was getting to treatment. I got into recovery. I, you know, my life has been good because of that. That's my story. He now serves in government, advocating to help people currently in the situation that he once was in. His experience with both addiction and homelessness put him in the perfect position to answer a question I couldn't help but have while walking around the downtown east side. You hear a lot of talk actually in the public discourse, especially in British Columbia, I think throughout Canada, about homelessness, the homelessness crisis. Is, is there a homelessness crisis in the sense that we just don't have enough homes or is this really right. uh, all about addiction and drugs and yeah. that's at the root of this problem? Yeah, 90% of it is about drugs and addiction. Uh, people are not living in tents on the downtown east side because they can't afford rent. They're, they're doing that because they're severely addicted to you know, heroin, cocaine and fentanyl. People are not living under overpasses. Uh, you know, because they don't have the opportunity to get an apartment. They're there because they're suffering from significant mental health and addiction issues. Uh, and so <clears throat> while it's a du there's a duality of issues, yes, they're homeless, but there's a reason why. And so we need to make sure that we're attempting to solve the right problem. But what a lot of people don't know is that the government has done a pretty good job in finding homes for people. The element that you see in Tent City, etc. They want to live there. With BC housing and the module housing and everything, they should be, it's, you get a lot of housing, but then you're also, there's a lot of restrictions. So everybody wants to be on the street. So you're not necessarily talking about the homelessness problem as there are not options. There are options. What many people might not know is that housing programs for people living on the street are widely available in Vancouver. Over the past four years, 1,400 permanent supportive homes have been built in Vancouver by the government, with 350 being added just this year. But although these buildings provide support services for drug-addicted residents, overdoses inside rooms are common. Data collected by police between 2017 and 2021 reveal that 50% of suspected deaths from overdose in the city occurred inside SROs and other supportive housing. I met with a recovered addict who spent 60 days getting clean in a treatment facility before he was sent to one of these government-funded SROs. I had arrived there and they took me upstairs and as I was passing an office heading to my hotel room, they basically had offered me meth pipes, crack pipes, needles, and sent me off to my room, which at that time I turned it down, but approximately 10 minutes after I got in my room, I had a knock on my door, and it was the person across the room, or across the hall from me, offering me a free sample of heroin, essentially. So I relapsed that night and was living there for, I think, approximately a year. And I'm in a situation where there's literally a drug dealer across the hall from me and down the hall from me, so like, I'm going to end up dying in this situation. Look, as a, as a person in addiction, the worst thing you can do for me is to give me four walls and a door that I can lock. You will quite likely find me dead on the living room floor at some point because we know that 70% of fatal overdoses happen at home alone on the living room floor. So statistically, uh, you know, uh, rapidly housing people who have serious addictions and secreting them away into hotel rooms uh, and apartments uh, is very dangerous uh, for them. I think the phenomenon is, is much more complex than just people not having enough shelter, not enough roofs over their house, over their heads. It's something much more that they're just living in a state in which they're not in control of their own lives, they're not healthy, they're not happy. And I think that is overwhelmingly correlates with, with, with drug use. 
you know, whenever I have somebody coming here from a different country or from, you know, a different part of Canada, and we pass through the, the downtown east side, they're often very shocked at it. And they say, you know, like, I've seen, you know, homelessness, I've seen drug addiction manifest before, but I've never seen quite so much in, in one area where, you know, people are literally on top of each other you know, shoulder to shoulder, you know, lying on top of one another. The, it's, it's, it's like nothing else. Hard drug use in Vancouver and British Columbia more broadly is truly out of control. In the first half of 2022, 1,095 people died from overdose in the province. On average, that's more than six lives lost every single day. And between January 2020 and July 2021, while around 1,800 British Columbians died from COVID, over 3,000, almost double, overdosed on illicit drugs. But besides the staggering toll on human life and increases in visible levels of homelessness, do drugs impact Vancouver in any other way? With your guys' various experiences with, with addiction, downtown east side or, or tent cities, how intertwined are those experiences and that lifestyle with, with criminal elements, organized crime, violence? Is that, are they kind of, they come with the territory? You have to, when you're, when you're a homeless addict, whatever, like you, in order to sustain your addiction, you have to do crime. Like I used to spend at least like almost $300 a day on my drugs and how I would have to sustain that was crime. You would be burying your head in the sand if you didn't realize that that is perpetuating crime because if you have a drug addiction and you can't pay for the drugs, then you're going to break into the car, you're going to break into the store, you're going to go and take a thousand dollars worth of merchandise to sell in the market. Those are just the things that are expected. They're connected because a person who has to fix you have to steal to get money to buy drugs. Daily life for me towards the end of it for the last couple of years was basically like any retail location that you could think of like me and the people I associated with were stealing like anything of value to sell for addiction. So like opiate withdrawal can be one of the most uncomfortable feelings ever for an addict, right? So you're willing to do things that growing up or with the morals instilled in you, you would never do. 14,500 people, all diagnosed with opiate use disorder in BC. Okay. On average, they have been sentenced for five uh, offenses each. The majority of the more than 50% are forms of theft. Uh, more than 10% are violent crimes. And why those? Those are related to the chaos that they're experiencing in their heads, the chaos in the surroundings that they live in. We will only decriminalize those people by addressing those factors. But government doesn't seem to be interested in addressing drug use as the root cause of homelessness, crime, and overdose. Instead, they have focused their energy and resources almost exclusively on a policy known as harm reduction. In 2001, the City Council of Vancouver took the first step in this direction with a strategy document called a Framework for Action, a four-pillar approach to drug problems in Vancouver. The document identified these four pillars as prevention, treatment, enforcement, and harm reduction. In practice, however, very little was done to prevent, treat, or enforce addiction-related issues in the city. It was harm reduction and the clarion call to reduce stigma that took center stage especially after 2003 and the opening of Insight, the first supervised drug injection site in all of North America. The Four Pillars approach was uh, conceived in response to what was at the time seen as unacceptable high of like 150 overdose deaths, deaths a year. Now we routinely have over 2,000 overdose deaths a year, right? So you look at how dramatically the rate of overdose has uh, overdoses has accelerated in this province and I don't know how you reach a conclusion that this has been a success, right? The problem though is that now it is so bound up in this kind of like cultural, philosophical, ideological sort of miasma that, you know, you can't really judge it in a utilitarian way. 
right? And so at best, you just kind of have to keep doubling down on the same ideological uh, conclusions, which is just, you know, less stigma, more drugs, basically. Instead of acknowledging the obvious failings of this program, both the province of BC and the city of Vancouver have been doubling down, placing a particular emphasis on enacting policies that, in their view, would reduce stigma toward those addicted to drugs. But is reducing stigma toward an outcome that we'd like as a society to limit or avoid really a good idea? And how does it match up with other public health campaigns literally being undertaken at the exact same time? This idea that the biggest problem we face is stigmatization is I think just such a backwards way of conceptualizing it, right? Like you want to stigmatize behavior that is destructive to the mind and the body. Drinking and driving is a great example. That has, you talk to people of, of sort of the older generation and they say that, you know, when they were growing up, drinking and driving was seen as somewhat comical or no big deal. But our generation has been, you know, I think rightfully sort of subject to a very intense campaign of a basically like stigmatization propaganda telling you that drinking and driving is in fact very bad and wicked and dangerous and terrible and that you should feel bad if you do it and you should talk your friends if they're talk your friends out of doing it since i graduated from high school they've spent 30 years trying to get kids not to get hooked on cigarettes only to turn around and say but we're okay with heavy 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 drugs so the question around stigma really is you know what is sort of toxic stigma uh, and what is just sort of the, the general social contract and the limitations that we put on certain behaviors and things in the community. Maybe the most prominent example of recent attempts to destigmatize and even normalize hard drug use in our society was the very public announcement by the NDP government that, with the support of Ottawa, they would be decriminalizing the possession of almost all hard drugs, including heroin, fentanyl, crystal meth, and cocaine. But in reality, does this policy change really make any difference? We never charge for simple possession of heroin since 1985. This seems like a classic example of something that is being done for 100% ideological reasons. It's being done for absolutely zero practical purpose. We are so deep down this ideological rabbit hole that the only problem is stigmatization that even sort of not, even just like symbolically not enforcing laws that we're already not enforcing is somehow seen as some sort of victory. You know, we were already not putting people in prison. We were already not arresting people for possession, but there was this kind of idea that somehow the fact that that was even theoretically possible was contributing in some way to the problem. Decriminalizing possession will do almost nothing other than pave the way for the more uh, straightforward provision of pharmaceuticals to those very people, because now it's legal for them to have it. Only now did everything begin adding up. Decriminalization, it turns out, had almost nothing to do with ending the imagined persecution of those addicted to drugs and everything to do with paving the way for yet another harm reduction program. And this time, they weren't simply handing out free and clean needles as was done in the past. This time, they were handing out free drugs to anyone who wanted them including in vending machines. It seems so kind of difficult to wrap my mind around about how, how the Vancouver political establishment could uh, reach the conclusion that, no, actually, we just need more of what we've been doing for the last 20 years. Well, Vancouver is definitely leading the way in the sense of trying interventions that have very little to no evidence base that have not been tried elsewhere, essentially as a human experiment on thousands of people. And I actually think that's particularly inhumane and not progressive. This idea that you're going to basically treat people's lives as a, as a lat, like a rat, you know, as a, like rats in a lab experiment. I always try and put it in the context of my own children. If they, God forbid, ended up addicted to drugs and they ended up downtown on the streets, the last thing I would want is for someone to give them more drugs watch them overdose, give them Narcan, give them more drugs, give them Narcan, until basically eventually they just successfully overdose one day. The policy of handing out free drugs is what's known as safe supply. The thinking being to give hard drugs like heroin to addicts 
so that they don't purchase the same drugs from illegal markets which might be cut with a more dangerous substance like fentanyl. This is meant to reduce the number of overdoses in Vancouver. But has this worked? Is so-called safe supply actually safe? There really is no such thing as safe supply, right? Uh, the term safe supply uh, is a marketing term. Uh, there is nothing safe about handing out opioids en masse to a population with as few controls as possible. Well, there's no such thing as a safe supply. When you supply somebody with a drug like fentanyl or heroin or cocaine or methamphetamine, there's nothing safe about that. You are perpetuating an illness, you are perpetuating addiction, and it's essentially state-sponsored addiction. The proposal to provide people who are homeless and unemployed with schizophrenia free methamphetamine and opioids. Um, what do you think that might do for their psychosis? The idea of safe supply is meant to replace an individual's addiction to more dangerous street drugs with those supplied by the government. But in practice, is this how it actually works? The safe supply drugs such as like uh, Dilaudid and Dexedrine and stuff, you have people that are, are getting that and they'll only take one before they go to the doctor for a urine test because the doctors will check to make sure that you're taking it, right? The rest of it gets sold on the black market. Like I've even heard of college students and high school students in this area in general purchasing those safe supply drugs off of dealers that sell all of the harder narcotics that are creating the problem that we see in the downtown east side. So they're, they're reselling the dope. The dealers who are paying, you know, a buck a pill are, are, are taking those to other jurisdictions around the city and selling them for 20 bucks a pill. Well, in Surrey right now, they're five bucks a pill all yeah. day, even upwards of seven and 10. It depends on the, the, the ebb and flow of the demand. Uh, you go to Edmonton, they're 20, 30 bucks. In New Brunswick and right. Newfoundland, upwards of $40. Right. Northern Saskatchewan, $40. Right. If all Safe Supply does is literally fund the drug habit for people struggling with addiction, how can the government possibly think this is the compassionate solution? The proponents of this, the quote-unquote left or whatever you want to call them, um, seem to have taken in their minds like the moral, the compassionate high ground. Yeah. But is this really the compassionate solution for these, these the, the people that are, that are living this life? Well, I, I, I certainly don't think so. I don't think it is. I don't think that when you look at somebody who is, who is like living in a kind of state of, uh, of like living death, a kind of like zombie-like sort of state, I don't think it is compassionate to kind of look at that person and say, that's as good as you'll ever have. We as a society have no aspiration for you that is better than that. Because we have an ideology, a condescending ideology, that says that is basically your lot in life. You cannot change it because you have no agency. Nothing about drug addiction relates to choice. And in fact, nothing about drug addiction is even inherently bad. So. It's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like what the old saying says, it's something so dumb that only an intellectual could believe it, right? But apart from ideology, there are other, more sinister reasons behind this new push for safe supply. Like any big government program, someone is always getting rich. There's a small world of researchers that have been perpetuating these very extreme policies who not only evaluate the policies themselves, so they run the program, have an incentive for the program to uh, you know, have a positive you know, study come out. They write an author or at least assist on and review those studies. But even worse, they're in many cases profiting off of these policies. So we know of researchers in British Columbia who have been perpetuating and pushing these very extreme harm reductionist policies who are turning around now and have stakes in private companies that are selling medical grade, as they call it, heroin or fentanyl, and profiting off of this. I also think politicians have really not been pushed because there's been a hugely fund, very well-funded, vocal uh, campaign to normalize drug use in BC for the last 25 years, and they're the ones with the political power right now. Unfortunately, this push by certain pharmaceutical companies to flood the market with government-supplied opioids in the name of public health is not new. In fact, we've been here before. History is repeating itself. Uh, we got into this mess, uh, you know, with the OxyContin crisis, 
when the manufacturers of that drug uh, widely distributed uh, you know, those pharmaceuticals in the community and we're here because of that. You know, a legal regulated market of, of opioids was not safe. Uh, they were not taken by those who were prescribed. Public health did not benefit uh, as a result of that. And, and so if you fast forward to today and you look at what is being said about safe supply, advocates for this policy are saying the same thing that a legal regulated supply of drugs would be safe, that public health would benefit, that they'd only be taken as directed and that you should get over it, you know, because opioids are a good thing. Uh, you know, the fact that those things are being said today by advocate groups that are not connected with the pharmaceutical industry is irrelevant, right? It's going to be very dangerous. So why, given all this, has the government continued to push an opioid-driven solution to a problem caused by opioids in the first place? Well, maybe it's because the government thinks addicts are somehow past the point of no return. Uh, the chief medical officer, Bonnie Henry, basically came out and said, if you're addicted to alcohol, you know there's treatment uh, right. that we can give for you to get better. But if you're addicted to opioids, yeah. uh, you know, there's kind of no effective treatment for that. Yeah, I mean, it's really unfortunate to hear from, from respected medical authorities that we don't have treatment to help people addicted to opioids. We do. The fact that people recover is undeniable. And it is, I just like, either shockingly ignorant um, or something else <laughs> to, to say otherwise. Dr. Bonnie Henry's comments are outrageous and, and unprofessional. As far as I know, Bonnie Henry is not a medical expert you know, when it comes to addiction. Uh, so if she's going to be weighing into these areas, she may want to you know, go back to medical school for a bit and, and do some training on the illness of addiction and, and how to successfully treat it. And the consequences of comments like that can be catastrophic to individuals who are hearing them. They can be very, very harmful for somebody in her position to say. Unfortunate thing is it's not just statements by Bonnie Henry and stuff that try to reinforce that. Like that's, I was basically told by a doctor that my only path was to be on opiate replacement therapy for the rest of my life to achieve some sense of normalcy. That was a very crippling thing to hear because like you, you lose a sense of hope. You think you're not gonna be able to make it out of this. That's not true. Like I've seen proof of otherwise. I am proof of otherwise. British Columbia's attempts to medicate the addiction crisis away and reject the possibility of recovery for thousands of people is not an approach shared by much of the rest of the world. Many countries have shown you can have tremendous success curbing addiction through government-supported treatment programs. And there's maybe no nation cited more frequently in this regard than the small European state of Portugal. One of the biggest uh, misconceptions is that Portugal has a laissez-faire approach, that they've essentially legalized drugs. In reality, what they've done is they've set up mechanisms to get people help, have some accountability when you're using. When you're, when you're using a small amount of drugs in Portugal, you're not just given a nod and told to go on your way. You actually are brought in into a multi, you know, three to five person panel that assesses your drug use and figures out if you need to go to treatment, if it's more of a warning, if it's more, you know, and, and they, they, they they kind of examine the individual cases. That's very different than what uh, BC is proposing to do by decriminalizing all drugs. Portugal is a really a, a very conservative society with a really aggressive uh, policy of intervention. Uh, and that is why the Portugal model is successful. Uh, I don't see any significant investments going on in British Columbia to reform the system of care. I see a lot of band-aid uh, solutions. Most of them involve uh, very dangerous pharmaceuticals uh, and, and a policy, a suite of ideological policies that are proving to be failures, all, not just in Vancouver, but all the way up the west coast of the United States. Although the BC government seems uninterested in adopting successful models for treatment and rehabilitation from elsewhere in the world, this hasn't stopped nonprofits and societies from stepping up to fill the void. I met with the founder of the Last Door Recovery Society to discuss how his organization has helped men recover from addiction, including opioid addiction, for over 35 years. 
So we look at it, we don't see people as crazy, but we do see them as being restored to sanity. And to see the families come back together and to see love and gratitude and community and see guys with their kids, it's, it's gold, you know? That's why I did it in the first place. And it's a lot easier than people think. It doesn't take that long. You know, within, you know, weeks, you feel better and you can eat and sleep and some normal. And you get a bit of clean time and people come back to sanity. You know, they get that clarity. A lot of programs you go in and people are literally, they're medicated the entire time they're there. And they look at these, at those drugs like, you know, like it's medication. No, it's drugs. You're giving painkillers to somebody that isn't in pain. What do you think is going to happen, you know, like that? I compare harm reduction to this. Let's do a drunk driving program, and if we're going to do proper harm reduction, we have to teach people to drive drunk. Does that sound insane? That's insane. The Last Door Recovery Society has a different approach than safe supply and harm reduction, and that is to foster a community to support and help those addicted to drugs to achieve complete and lasting abstinence from substance abuse and remission of their disease. Now they're saying, well, abstinence puts you in danger of overdose. Uh, using puts you in danger of overdose, you know? All you hear in the media is, is decriminalization, uh, safe supply. They don't write about people's stories of someone that gets well. Uh, like I've got 16 years clean coming up, you know? Uh, I have my own story, right? So when people say like recovery doesn't work, when politicians say it, when doctors say it, um, people in the media say it, you know, it's unattainable, it's a lie. I have almost 18 months clean at the age of 18 and it's like absence-based recovery works like I see it I see it every day I'm constantly surrounded by it I got my child back I got a meaningful job I got home does harm reduction provide that for me did it at any time of my life did it give me something meaningful and I got clean like pretty easily I think because I wasn't introduced to like harm reduction because if I knew about it honestly like I don't, I don't know if I would be clean. Keeping people sick and keeping them where they're at, where's the humanity in that? For many addicts it might seem like there is no hope of recovery. For many homeless living in tent cities, a normal life of stability might seem impossibly out of reach. And for residents of Vancouver, the condition of their city, including the random violent attacks, might seem a situation too far gone to get back under control. But these are false realities. This isn't normal, and we should not allow our politicians to convince us otherwise. A city as rich in natural beauty and economic prosperity as Vancouver deserves better than this. I mean, the buck stops with the mayor. Period. It's absolutely a disgrace. So hard decisions have to be made, and this mayor is not making them. My worry for places like Vancouver is whether things get to a tipping point of no return. I often wonder how bad things are going to need to get uh, in order for the general public, the voting public, to wake up and start demanding that political leaders actually take some substantive steps to fixing this. In 2001, you'd said, like, there's going to be crack pipe vending machines. You know, people would have thought you were some sort of, like, completely insane, paranoid right-wing crackpot. So I think that if there's one thing we've kind of learned from Vancouver's approach to dealing with, with, with drugs, it's that, uh, you know, there is no such thing as a scenario that's too wild to contemplate. My name is Aaron Gunn, and this has been Politics Explained. <laughs>